This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome to this week's edition of America's Voice for Energy. I'm Marita Noon, Executive Director of Energy Makes America Great and the companion educational organization, the Citizens Alliance for Responsible Energy. If you're a regular listener, to America's Voice for Energy, you know that each week I write an energy-themed column. What I like to do is kind of connect together previously unconnected news stories. This week, the title of my column is, It's a Bad Time to Be in the Renewable Energy Industry. And it does connect many different news stories. Because of my position of prominence in the energy uh, commentary community, a lot of people send me different tidbits about what's going on. And I noticed something come through my email about Texas uh, and their renewable portfolio standard. Then I noticed something about Oklahoma. Then I read in The Economist magazine one line that was pivotal to my decision to make this my theme of my column this week, and it was talking actually about biofuels. And the one line said, many companies are starting to give up. Well, the combination of these things was the result, uh, it resulted in this week's column, it's a bad time to be in the renewable energy industry. And as we're going to learn in our first segment of our show today, a lot of the renewable energy industry got launched as a result of a policy called the Renewable portfolio standard. And to talk to us about that today, we have Daniel Simmons. And Daniel is the Vice President for Policy at the Institute for Energy Research. And you guys do great work there at the Institute for Energy Research. Daniel, thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. So tell us about this renewable portfolio standard. What's some of the history and, uh, you know, what's happened to it more recently? Okay. Um, you know, there, there are two uh, related uh, uh, and, and often confused uh, terms that people throw about in, uh, with, with renewable energy. Um, one is renewable portfolio standards. What renewable, renewable portfolio standards are is a... Uh, a mandate in a state to produce a certain amount of electricity in that state from renewable sources. Um, and many, uh, you know, about 10 years ago, there was a there was a fad. It was, you know, led by actually the first one of the first states was Texas to have one of these because Texas has a lot of wind. But then a lot of kind of more left leaning states started implementing these uh, these mandates to uh, get a certain amount of their electricity from renewable sources. Texas, by the way, has you know, they, they complied with theirs years and years ago because uh, they had a mandate, but it was a small mandate. And so that's the first thing is renewable portfolio standards that is a requirement to get electricity from wind. At the same well, let, time, me, let me stop. Can I stop you for just a second, sure. Daniel? Because yeah. you brought up something very interesting. You said Texas was first. And what first off, when was, when was Texas? Was it 1999? Um. You know, I, I don't remember the exact date, but I believe you're right that it was in the 90s. Yeah, that's kind of what I recall from my research. But you then said, and many left-leaning states, and in my research this does tend to be 
left-leaning policy, which is certainly not Texas. So do you know what was Texas thinking? Um, no, I, I don't know what Texas was thinking. I mean, <laughs> it, it, it could have been, you know, President Bush, I, I think it might have been the time when President Bush was the governor of Texas. President Bush, you know, he gets a rap as a big oil guy, but you know, the reality is, is that he liked wind quite a lot. Um, and, you know, there was the, their mandate was not like a, was not a crazy mandate. And now I don't support mandates for any sources of electricity, but if you're going to, you know, if you're going to implement one, at least have one that is, uh, you know, you know, small and easily, easily complied with. Yes. Uh, so states that were, you know, Texas might have been one of the first states, but then other states like California or New Jersey of all places, you know, started coming out with these same sorts of plans. And then it also spread into more kind of, uh, in the more centrist states um, that, that might have decent wind resources, such as uh, Kansas, they have a renewable portfolio standard because they have a lot of wind. Sure. Um, and so over over time, this is uh, it. Uh, many states, 29 states, in fact, have these renewable portfolio standards. Um, actually, that's not true because West Virginia just rolled theirs back. Uh, 20, <laughs> 28 states have them. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we see that on, in more kind of Republican-leaning states, there's been pushback because people figured out, wait a second here, this doesn't make a lot of sense to mandate, you know, using any source of, of electricity. Why don't we do with what works as opposed to what the politicians are going to say you should use? So that's where we are now. We're looking at we've got these policies in place, and there are some in addition to the 29 states that actually have a renewable portfolio standard, and if I recall correctly, there's a few states that call it something slightly different, but there are also states that had voluntary targets as well. Is that correct? That's correct. States like Virginia has a voluntary target, Utah has a voluntary target, and a couple, uh, a couple three more have, uh, have voluntary targets, um, which obviously is not, not, not nearly concerning as it uh, to me, um, you know, voluntary isn't as, as big of a problem. However, you know, when, when it comes to uh, electricity rates frequently, uh, utilities will use a voluntary target to say, hey, Public Utility Commission, you should let us build a lot more wind and then charge the, uh, uh, you know, the, our ratepayers, the American people, for the, for the cost of building that. So it drives up electricity uh, rates even, even in some voluntary states. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that they say, hey, let's put more of this in, and then therefore we should have a rate increase, because uh, that's one thing people tend to not realize, I think, is how much this impacts um, the utility rates with it when they have these more expensive renewable energy policies. So how, does, how do these mandates um, play out in a state and, and impact rates? Sure. The, the, the two renewable uh, sources that get used the most are wind. By far, by, you know, far and away it's wind. But in some places, like California, there's a lot of, there's a lot of solar that's coming online. And, uh, you know, what, first of all, to just kind of understand the electricity industry and how it works, the thing that matters most is that electricity has to be, uh, well, it's consumed when it's produced. So, in other words, through the course of the day, as people use more electricity, you know, as it gets hotter, people turn on their AC, and people increase the, their use of electricity, that means that the power companies, the utilities, have to turn on more and more plants over the course of the day to meet the requirements, because there's no gigantic batteries of, you know, to store right. the electricity. 
And so what, what that means is the way that the system is designed is to, you know, be able to turn on plants over the course of the day and to do that in a, you know, very efficient way. Um, and you have some plants that run 24-7. Those are coal plants. Those are nuclear plants. They're very efficient uh, and they're very cost-effective. And so one of the things that happens, though, is with wind particularly, you, don't, you can't control the wind. I mean, obviously. I mean, that's, that's stupid. But it really matters for, for electricity because when the wind is blowing, who know, you know, the, the grid operator, the, peop, you know, the utility has to turn off plants um, you know, due to due to the wind, um, and when they turn off more expensive plants, that's not necessarily a problem. However, the wind blows the most overnight. It blows the most during the winter, during this fall, and the you know, and and the spring. However, electricity demand is the greatest during the summer. So, wind doesn't necessarily help you keep the lights on when you need it most, which are those highest demand periods of of the year. And as a result, also, when the wind is blowing very strongly overnight, it means that it's cutting back into nuclear or cutting back into coal. And what that means is that those most cost-effective plants that we have are taking a hit. And this is particularly a hit because wind gets subsidized um, through, the, uh, through the wind production tax credit. So the American taxpayer is subsidizing kind of this attack on nuclear and coal um, through the tax code. So it is... Uh, Unfortunately, that's a it, it's a real problem for some plants that are near where there's a where there's a decent amount of of wind, and so it leads to um, you know some of these cost-effective plants closing and having to build new plants, and that over time increases electricity rates. Yeah. Now, Daniel, you mentioned the subsidies or that go to wind, the tax credits that go to wind. You know, when I'm uh, like giving testimony at a hearing, uh, as I am this week, uh, on subsidies and so forth, or when I write on it, as I have been doing a lot lately, uh, there's a I get a constant push pushback, and they say, "Oh, well, the fossil fuel industry gets subsidies as well." They say the coal industry gets subsidies, oil and gas gets subsidies. How would you address that uh, there are uh, there are some subsidies for um, almost all sources of energy <laughs> first of all we do not I mean I do not support subsidies for any source of energy no matter if it's you know nuclear coal oil gas what whatever yeah, I'm with you there but the, the but the reality is that in terms of energy output like subsidies in for energy out um, you get a heck of a better deal for the subsidies of, that, that go to coal to uh, you know, to, to, to nuclear, to oil or gas compared to wind. Wind is a very bad deal. Um, it is uh, a couple of years ago when we looked at the data, you know, it's like $40 per, um, it's, it, it would be something on the order of about 40 to $60 for wind compared to about $0.60 cents for, for, say, coal or, or um, oil or, or gas. So we were talking. Do you, do you happen to know offhand where, where solar would fit in there? Uh, uh, unfortunately, I don't know off the top of my head. Okay. But you all have, in, in the Institute for Energy Research has done a report on that, haven't you? Yes. Yes. Um, so where, where could our listeners find that report? Uh, our, um, our website is instituteforenergyresearch.org. And, uh, you know, if you, if you just search for um, uh, Subsidies, um, subsidies for BTU. That's where you'd find some of these numbers. Okay, so in two, in 2011, for example, um, I just I just pulled it up. In 2011, the uh, and and these are a few years old now. So I mean, it, it actually has gotten a little bit better 
um, but in 2011 report from from uh, the uh, Energy Information Administration, fossil fuels received about four cents per million BTUs of energy produced, while the renewable fuels um, were paid one dollar and ninety-seven cents per uh, per million BTUs. So it is dramatically different. It's not that stark of difference today, but it is still a huge difference. So that renewables get you know forty times more subsidy per. Forty energy. times would be a, a, an appropriate uh, figure to use today. Yes, it's. I mean, that, that's much closer to the ballpark. Yeah. Daniel, we've got a little bit less than one minute left. I want to make sure I give you the opportunity to address what you want to address about uh, this policy in our remaining 45 seconds. Sure. Uh, you know, the, the reality is, is that um, you, sometimes we get uh, people can be suckered into thinking about that we know what the future is going to be in terms of energy. And, you know, the answer is that, unfortunately, we don't. Ten years ago, we thought we were seeing declining oil, declining natural gas. Today we're completely different. We thought we we're going to be importing natural gas. Now we're going to be exporting natural gas. So, you know, we should, you know, trust the American people to figure out what energy works. Um, that's exactly what happened with the natural gas industry, and that's why we've gone from concerns about imports to, you know, low natural gas prices, and now we're going to be exporting. It's a great thing as long as we let the market work. Great. Well, let's thank you so much, Daniel Simmons, with the Institute for Energy Research, for joining us today on America's Voice for Energy. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Steve Ronaldo, host of the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio. Uh, just talking to you about anti-car insurance. I think that uh, if you're looking for the best coverage for your classic car, consider J.C. Taylor Insurance. They've been our my insurer for years in this hobby and have the top rating of every, all of the insurance companies in the hobby. When you get ready for insurance, call J.C. Taylor or visit jctaylor.com on the Internet. The United States Justice Foundation since 1979 has been dedicated to instructing, informing, and educating the public on legal issues confronting America. That means you and me. When necessary, this nonprofit organization has had to litigate to present the constitutional view. Since 1980, USJF has submitted testimony to the U.S. Senate on all but one U.S. Supreme Court nominee. Learn more about USJF by visiting their website at www.usjf.net. Support this nonprofit as it defends our rights, our liberty, and our Constitution. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. I put the stop, hit the stopwatch before I told you we're going to start. Okay, we're going to start again in three, two, one. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. Here in the first half of the show, we're talking about the renewable portfolio standard. And in this segment, I'm delighted to have John Ike with me. And John is the Director of Energy, Environment, and Agriculture at the American Legislative Exchange Council. And John, you all have done a, had a long focus, if, if I understand correctly, on the renewable portfolio standard. Can you tell us what's your interest in that topic? Yeah, uh, Marita, it's great to be with you today. Um, as, as you said, uh, I work for ALC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, and um, it is an organization, nonpartisan organization, comprised of about one-third of all state lawmakers are across the country. Um, and we bring 
members of the private sector as well as, as think tank folks and intellectuals and overall smart people to the table to, the, to discuss free market uh, policy solutions. And so our work on uh, when it comes to energy policy and environmental policy generally, um, you know, takes the perspective that access to affordable, reliable, and safe energy is of utmost uh, importance to uh, growing economies uh, and free societies. And so as we look specifically at, at the renewable portfolio standard, the reason why we're so interested as an organization in that particular issue is that in, in many respects the RPS is, uh, uh, contradicts a lot of those, those principles that we uh, operate under, the idea of affordable and reliable uh, electricity. Yeah, and it's certainly certainly not free market when you have a government mandate that says that you must produce energy from a certain uh, source regardless of whether it's the most cost effective. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And, you know, in, 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 in some instances, uh, renewable energy makes a great deal of sense. But, but the key, as you, as you noted there, is that it needs to, uh, you know, be cost effective. It needs to be the cheapest option uh, that there is, and um, you know, forcing renewable energy onto the electric grid is is not the way to do that. Is not the best way to do that, I should say. Yeah, and, and you know, there isn't really, there's not a one size fits all kind of solution. Uh, what's right in one circumstance uh, isn't necessarily right in another circumstance. Yeah, that's absolutely correct, and you know, if you want to dive a little deeper uh, specifically into some of the renewable technologies. Um, you know, solar, for instance, yeah, it can be great technology in, uh, in the Sun Belt and the American Southwest, but um, in New England, the, you know, a state like Vermont would be hard-pressed to generate a tremendous amount of electricity from solar. Uh, you know, wind, for instance, uh, is, is greatly variable across the country, and so you're exactly right in that. Um, you know, different states have unique circumstances. They have uh, unique resources at their disposal. And, you know, heavy-handed government action, um, you know, that mandates the use of certain technologies over others, you know, is probably not the best way to go about doing things. You know, as you mentioned that, you remind me, and I know this isn't necessarily what my column is about this week, and let me mention, by the way, that uh, for our listeners, you can find the col my column, which is the theme of what we're talking about on today's show, as we do every week, uh, but this week's column is titled, It's a Bad Time to Be in the Renewable Energy Industry, and you can find that column on Breitbart.com, RedState.com, and many other online commentary sites. Uh, but as you're talking, John, you're reminding me, we're talking about, you know, kind of the one-size-fits-all thing, about the clean power plan. And I know that's, not, that's a little off topic, but that's where we've got the federal government uh, mandating what each state needs to do, where the renewable portfolio standard is a state-by-state -state decision. No, you're absolutely right. And the interesting thing about the renewable portfolio standard as it uh, relates to the Clean Power Plan is that EPA determined, uh, you know, each state's propensity or capability of implementing uh, uh, four different what they call building blocks. And, and the third building block is to increase the use of renewable energy within a respective uh, state. And the way they determined what each state's ability 
or supposed ability to uh, to integrate more renewable is to take a look at the renewable portfolio standards that were already on the books uh, in the in the surrounding states, in the states in the same region. So, if you take the southeast, for example, North Carolina is the only state with an RPS. Every other state in the southeast does not have one, but through the Clean Power Plan, EPA is, uh, you know, to an extent, implementing a de facto RPS on every other state in the southeastern part of the country uh, because North Carolina has one. You know, that obviously means that Tennessee, South Carolina, Georgia, for instance, should also have the same RPS. Yeah, and so tell us a little more about the RPSs that exist and how are they different in different states. Do you know? Yeah, so uh, I guess the uh, the RPSs, generally speaking, take uh, one of two approaches. The first approach is a percentage-based approach. So, you know, in a particular state, for instance, let's say North Carolina, I believe they have a mandate requiring 12.5% by 2020, by a certain uh, uh, deadline. In other states, like Texas, for example, they take um, an installed capacity approach, so they require a certain um, number of megawatts installed to be on the grid. Um, you know, what that means is when you have a certain percentage, as population continues to increase, as demand for electricity continues to rise, you need to keep adding more renewable energy to uh, keep up with the required percentage. Um, ah, that, that, that's helpful because that's, I didn't understand why Texas, said that when they, they have just voted in the House, I believe it is, to uh, end their renewable portfolio standard, but yet um, I understood they'd met their renewable portfolio standard, so I didn't understand why they voted to end it. But I guess that explains it, because they they have such a high implementation, but in theory, as their population grows, they would need more? No, and, and I, I believe it was actually the Senate that already took a look at that. Uh, that, that um, okay. That I know in, a, in Oklahoma it's one, in Texas it's the other, but... Yeah, exactly. So you're, you're in, right. It's the Senate because Oklahoma's the House, and now it goes to the Senate. Right. So in Texas, uh, I believe their requirement is just under six six thousand uh, megawatts of installed capacity. Of course, Texas is the number one state in the country uh, in terms of, of wind resources and, and and the number of wind turbines that have been deployed. In fact. I believe they're currently at three times of you know, the level or three times the, the rate that uh, the RPS calls for. And so the position of the bill sponsor in the Texas Senate is that the RPS is no, no longer needed because mission accomplished. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I think uh, whether or not the RPS is actually good policy or not is a completely different debate, but that's the position that the, uh, that, that the Texas Senate has taken. Um, they voted to repeal the RPS, and I believe that bill is now uh, in the House. Yeah, that's my understanding as well. So what is, what's the status in some of the other states? So last year, Ohio uh, made, a, made a lot of news. Ohio became the first state in the country uh, and, and, uh, to, to roll back their uh, uh, renewable energy mandate. Um, before 2014, there were 29 states uh, with RPS mandates on the book. In Ohio, uh, last year, implemented a two-year moratorium on the mandate, 
and in the meantime is going to establish a legislative study commission to take a further look at the RPS in the state to determine precisely what the impact is on cost, on electric reliability, et cetera, et cetera. Um, West Virginia became the first state to outright repeal their renewable mandate uh, earlier this year, in, in early 2015. Um, you know, of, of course, the, the caveat that a number of, uh, of, of renewable energy proponents uh, will, will state as well, you know, West Virginia could technically achieve their uh, alternative energy mandate by utilizing clean coal technology and other fossil fuel-based uh, alternatives. But, you know, as far as I'm concerned, a mandate's a mandate. Renewables would certainly play a role in the West Virginia mandate in all likelihood, and I think that's certainly a step in the right direction. Uh, well, you add, you add Ohio and West Virginia together, and, and along with, with Texas and Oklahoma, uh, and, and you're beginning to see a trend. I mean, the, the, the other side does this with fracking. They get, a, they get a fracking moratorium passed in some community where there's no fracking happening at all, and they go to a liberal university town where they, you know they they don't understand any of this stuff, nor the economic impact. And then then they use that to build momentum. And I see the same thing happening. I didn't put this in my column, but I see that same thing happening uh, on the free market side. Those of us who support free market policies, which includes myself, um, and you know you you look at Ohio and you look at West Virginia, you look at Texas, you look at Oklahoma, and you look at the other states where that have tried to make changes, maybe unsuccessfully, but have tried, and, and I see it begins to, to look like a trend. Yeah, you raise an interesting point. In North Carolina last week, they voted down in committee uh, in, in the House um, uh, a bill that would repeal their renewable portfolio standard, but we're hearing that they might take another look at it uh, later this week or into next week. Kansas is also taking a look at their RPS, um, and you know the, 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 there appears to be a trend there. Um, you know, I think from my perspective, the fact that these conversations are even being had uh, in the first place is certainly a big deal. Um, and uh, you know, as a, at the very beginning, a lot of these mandates might not be terribly expensive or have um, significant implications on, on electric reliability, um, you know, putting 1%, 2%, 3% onto the grid is, is fairly easy, but once a lot of that low-hanging fruit um, is accounted for, states are going to have a very, very difficult time ramping up these mandates to 15, 20, 25% that many, you know, have on the books. And so as these mandates become more expensive and, you know, potentially cause more problems for grid reliability, I think you're going to see not only this conversation continuing in, in years to come, but a number of states taking the, uh, the position that Ohio and West Virginia have already taken to either impose moratoria or to uh, outright repeal the mandate on the books. Yeah, in my state of New Mexico, we had a, we had a bill that was uh, passed out of the House, Republican-controlled House, and did not make it through the Senate, but it would have held the RPS where we are, 
and uh, someone that I know who's closer to the uh, utility business in New Mexico than I am, uh, but is philosophically on the same side of the fence as I am, uh, said, well, it was really too late. The bill was introduced too late because the utility company had already made so much investment in meeting that 20% by 2020 that uh, you really it was too late to dial it back. We got, we've got about 25 seconds, John. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, utilities, like any other private uh, company, like regulatory uh, regulatory certainty. They do not like regulatory uncertainty. Um, but any, you know, the, Alex's position is that a lot of those uh, agreements were made in accordance with the law, and that cost recovery should be a part of it. But yeah. uh, as you said, this will continue, and I'm sure more news will continue to break this year and in the future. Well, great. Thanks so much, John Ike, for joining me, Director of Energy, Environment, and Agriculture at the American Legislative Exchange Council. We'll be right back with America's Voice for Energy on AmericasWebRadio.com. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. Who is or what is USJF? It is a nonprofit legal organization founded to protect our rights through the U.S. Constitution. Active in educating the public, USJF has also contributed directly and indirectly to legal defense efforts in many celebrated cases involving fundamental conservative principles. Cases of note include the Mount Soledad Cross case, the Arizona Immigration Law case, the Obama eligibility cases, the NDAA illegal detention issue, and many more. Help this nonprofit as they help you. Visit www.usjf.net today. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. In our first two segments, we were talking with gentlemen who are involved professionally in policy analysis. We've talked about the Renewable Portfolio Standard, also known as the RPS, and we've talked about some of the history of it, different states. But now we're going to talk to kind of a boots-on-the-ground kind of person, someone who's really dealing with the impacts of the RPS in his state. I'm pleased to welcome back to America's Voice for Energy my friend, John Droz, who's been working on this issue in the state of North Carolina. John, welcome to America's Voice for Energy, and tell us what's happening in North Carolina. Thank you, Maria. Uh, Pleased to be here. Uh, For those that may not know, I'm a scientist here, an independent person here, so I don't really have any stake. No one's paying me here to do anything. I'm just interested in what's in the best interest of North Carolina citizens and businesses. Uh, Yeah, thank you for clarifying that. I appreciate it. Briefly, um, in 2007, North Carolina passed uh, an RPS. Uh, It was locally known as uh, Senate Bill 3. And there were four justifications for it, um, but unfortunately none of them really were legitimate. For instance, they said one of the reasons was to give them energy independence. Well, that's 
in my view, sort of silly to say that uh, if North Carolina took uh, energy, let's say, for our electricity from uh, Virginia, as an example, that that would be undermining independence. But that's the type of silliness that's uh, really the foundation of these type of uh, rules. So we have been trying to fix this for some time. Uh, in 2013, a bill called 298 was introduced, uh, but uh, that got withdrawn because of political infighting. Uh, long story, so I know we're under short time period here. But So a version of that was introduced just uh, recently in um, North Carolina called uh, House Bill 861. The gist of it was that it would back off, not, not cancel, but uh, back off on the um, mandate that uh, Senate Bill 3 uh, uh, required. So the, the basic problem, in my view, of these mandates is that uh, governments have no business making mandates generally in the first place, and second of all, yeah. they certainly have no business making them when there's no proof that there's a net benefit from them. Uh, a comparison I use to people is if, uh, let's say, North Carolina decided that they um, were trying to encourage General Motors to build a large uh, manufacturing facility in the state. So to do that, they said, we're going to mandate that 50% of the cars in North Carolina be General Motors vehicles. Yeah. Well, I think uh, most people would say, oh, my God, I mean, what do you mean telling me the type of vehicle I've got to drive? Well, it's actually no difference in the electricity area, but the fact is that most people don't understand electricity. So the fact that the, we're, they're mandating a renewable energy and solar is uh, just as bad as if they mandated that we had to use General Motors vehicles. Yeah, you brought up an interesting point there, John, and that is, um, that most people don't understand electricity, and that very issue is one of the things that I've found in my work on this topic that makes it so easy um, for the solar promoters in particular uh, to, to push this, that, you know, you're, they don't talk about the grid usage and some of these other other factors that play into this on how the utility company has to provide electricity for these solar customers at night. And so now that this implementation of rooftop solar panels in particular has become more widespread and the utility companies are coming in and saying, you know, we've got to have some compensation for all these other factors here. Um, People squawk to high heaven over, oh, no, you can't charge me. And, in fact, I was in Las Vegas last week visiting my mother, and a neighbor was picked me up, and he's got solar panels on his roof. And the utility company is now wanting to, to change um, the agreement with him, which personally I think is not a good idea. I think you made a deal with with someone under a certain plan, you got to grandfather them in when you change the plan, but that's, that's kind of neither here nor there. The point is, is that the utility companies are realizing, you know, we've got to have some, some compensation here, and, and people are squawking, and I think a big part of that is uh, because they don't understand electricity. In this particular scenario, I said to the guy, I mean, I could explain it to you if you'd like to, like to understand why they need to do this. But, again, he was a neighbor picking me up, doing my mom a favor, and so I'm like, I'm not going to 
you know, antagonize the guy who's giving me a free ride from the airport. But but I found that's that's a real key issue. Absolutely. Uh, it's the same thing with science, which is my broader interest here. People sure. uh, in general say they uh, uh, approve of science and uh, support scientists, but uh, ironically, if you get down to it, if you ask people what the definition of science is, they don't even So the problem is how can you support something if you don't even understand it? So we're in a complex situation here, and the people who are marketing these type of things are full that uh, type of uh, discrepancy, and they take full advantage of it. So, for instance, last week at this testimony against this bill, 681, which is trying to, as I say, modestly fix uh, Senate Bill 3, there was a, a variety of really foolish things said by state representatives who are Republicans who would be expected ordinarily to support this. And, like, what kind of things were they saying? Well, as an example, one person who is a leading person got up and said that the only way he would support this bill is if he got a written statement from Duke, you know, major power company in the state, right. guaranteeing that uh, the uh, uh, this bill would reduce electricity rates. Well, first of all, this wasn't really just about reducing electricity rates. Second of all, electricity rates are very complex things that are... Uh, purposefully obfuscating in a complex way to try to confuse uh, customers. Third of all, uh, Duke uh, is not doesn't have the ability to make a an official uh, rate declaration without the state's uh, utility commission giving them a specific approval to do so. So it would be illegal for Duke to do this, and this legislator knows that. Uh, fourth of all, uh, there was a part of this bill that reduced what they called uh, renewable re, uh, recovery costs. That was something that the initial initial seven, uh, Senate Bill 3 uh, uh, provided, that utility companies could charge customers a recovery cost. Well, this bill would remove that. So by definition, removing that charge would lower their rates. And this legislator knew that they were going to be lowering their rates. So he already had effectively a guarantee that there would be lower rates. Uh, fifth of all, uh, this isn't just about electricity rates. These things have a lot of impact on other things here, like uh, tax consequences and other effective uh, job aspects to the whole economics picture. I think a, a perfect example of this was that a small wind project off of the uh, coast of uh, uh New Jersey uh, done an independent study, concluded that there was something like um, 90,000 uh, years uh, job years uh, that would be lost to the state due to this one simple wind project. Well, obviously that has nothing to do with the rates per se directly. So there's a lot of other impacts on uh, economic impacts on this whole thing than uh, these things uh, are led to believe. And yet these are yeah. people who are legislators. You'd think that they would understand the big picture here, yet they say some things that are sort of foolish. Yeah, so the, the RPS in North Carolina, uh, it's been around, as you said, uh, for many years at this point. Where, where, is it, where is it right now? I just wanted it uh, was introduced. Um, oh. Well, it, it's, it's still sitting there. So uh, I've primarily been fighting the wind energy end of it. <clears throat> only so many hours in the day here, and there's been numerous wind projects proposed for North Carolina. Uh, fortunately, because in each case we have um, uh, 
uh, developed a fairly effective strategy and uh, um, gotten local people educated, which is really my basic fundamental to more people know about these things, the more they oppose it. That uh, despite eight years of pressure and numerous wind projects proposed, there's not a single wind turbine in the state of North Carolina. Not one. Well, you know, uh, John, I know you and I know what your efforts are, but I know not, of, not all of our listeners do. Uh, you're talking about public education, which seems to me a great opportunity for you to give us your website, tell people what your efforts on public education on this topic are. Sure. We've tried to put this together on a website called wiseenergy.org. Pretty simple. One word, wiseenergy.org. And uh, it's, it's not a comprehensive list of all the materials out there. What we tried to do is selectively uh, choose articles that were of more, you know, reports and studies that were of more value in three areas. One would be technical areas. That would deal with things like reliability and whatever. Second of all would be environmental things, which would include health matters, human health. And third of all would be economic. So in those three areas, we have sections. We also have a section about legal aspects. So, for instance, we get a lot of questions about uh, legality. For instance, yesterday I had a long chat with a uh, person in uh, Texas who's trying to uh, fix a problem in Texas, and they're introducing uh, legislation there. So, uh, But on our website, it has it all spelled out, what, what needs to be done. So he could just go to our website and copy and paste effectively uh, what we have uh, outlined very carefully to uh, solve his situation. So, yes, we'll and you've got there things that have proven to be effective. Yes. Well, I'm, I'm giving an example of effective that we've been fighting this eight years in North Carolina, and not a single turbine has been built. So, that seems to me to be a pretty good indication of effectiveness. Exactly, exactly. You've done a, done a great job with that. You mentioned Texas, and in my column this week, which let me remind our listeners, is available on Breitbart.com, RedState.com, and many other uh, commentary sites throughout the Internet. Uh, I mentioned that in Texas, uh, the Senate has recently passed a bill ending its renewable portfolio standard, and uh, Oklahoma ha has passed something similar in the House. Oklahoma had voluntary targets. Uh, so we've got some precedent here. Uh, New Mexico and Colorado also passed bills out of one chamber that unfortunately didn't pass in the other chamber, but both Oklahoma and Texas are projected to pass uh, the other chamber as well. Are, have you followed those cases at all? Yes, I am uh, watching that, and there are certainly some promising developments that are happening there, yes. Yeah, I like to uh, encourage people with those because, you know, when you look at uh, on the uh, liquid fuel side, which we're going to talk about in our next segment, uh, the, the anti-petroleum crowd uses a... a when they get a fracking ban passed in one community, especially one that doesn't even have any oil and gas development, they they herald that as a victory and use it to build momentum. Well, you know, I believe that we who fight for free market energy decisions uh, can can do the same thing. We can use some of these other cases as as a victory to build momentum. We've just got about 15 seconds left. John, anything else you want to add? Well, it, it all comes down to education. That's my general uh, thrust here is that people should study these things and not take other 
uh, you know, the word of lobbyists here, because that's really who our opponent is, lobbyists for self-serving interest here. We need to represent ourselves. Great. Thank you, John Droz. Appreciate all your efforts. Remember, folks, Wise Energy, no, sorry, what yep. is it? Yes, wiseenergy.org. Wiseenergy.org. Thank you for joining us today on America's Voice for Energy. You're welcome. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. This week we've been talking about the, the change in public attitude towards renewable energy. In our first three segments, we've been specifically talking about electricity, what's called the Renewable Portfolio Standard. In my column this week, towards the end, I also discussed what's called the R. FS, the Renewable Fuel Standard, which is about liquid fuels. And so appropriately here in our last segment of America's Voice for Energy, we're talking about the RFS, which is basically also known as the uh, ethanol mandate. And I'm excited to have Bob Greco with us today, and he is the downstream group director with the American Petroleum Institute also known as API. And API has closely been following um, this ethanol mandate issues. And just as we talked about in our last segment, that, you know, it's wrong for government to be mandating that what consumers can use, what kind of products they can use, the government currently mandates a certain amount of ethanol be blended into our gasoline, and, and this particular law was written, in my opinion, in a, in a really odd way in that it required increasing amounts of ethanol be produced. Bob Greco, thanks for joining us today, and I hope you can explain this for our listeners. My pleasure. I'd be happy to. Um, um, the, the renewable fuel standard is basically a mandate for the um, oil and gas industry to blend increasing amounts of biofuels into gasoline and diesel. And you have to remember, this was passed back in 2007. And at the time, Congress and the rest of the world was worried about increasing domestic imports, so we were becoming more and more dependent on, on domestic um, imports at that time. Um, we, our gasoline usage was going up. Our greenhouse gas emissions were going up. And this was passed in the effort to try to all those things around. Now, fast forward to today, and what's happened? All of those dynamics have changed. We now have this um, boom in domestic oil production. We're the number one producer of oil and natural gas. Our imports are going down as we become energy self-sufficient. Uh, the amount of gasoline we're using is going down as well. Um, the federal government's projections have dropped 12% 
for, for this year and another, another up to 28% by 2022. And our greenhouse gas emissions are going down because of natural gas usage for electric power. So the whole purpose and reason for the RFS has changed, and we need Congress to acknowledge that we're in a different world and basically repeal this mandate, which is becoming increasingly unworkable as we have to blend more and more gallons of fuel, of ethanol and biofuels into gasoline and diesel. Yeah, now can you explain the part of that, that original law, which, as you said, was, was put in place nearly a decade ago, as was the case with the RPS that we've been talking about in my earlier segments with our other guests, uh, and, and as you said, it was a totally different energy era, as I like to call it, but what, explain the, the weird thing of the law that says, you know, you have to have more, most, rather than a percentage, it was based on gallons. That's correct. It was um, there are actual gallon numbers that Congress picked out of the air, frankly, and <laughs> had to be added. To they're fond of doing vehicles. that. Yeah, every year, and they're increasing mandates, and it actually ramps up to 36 billion gallons by 2022. And the problem with that is we have um, there's a limit to how much ethanol we can we can safely blend in gasoline. It's called the blend wall because every car on the road today can only use about 10 percent. Uh, ethanol and gasoline. Some cars can use a little more, about 10% of the fleet, but the, by and large, there's, there's a roughly a 10% limit on how much ethanol can be blended. And when you exceed that and try to blend more than that, we've, we've had research done that shows that vehicles can have problems with, um, with engine operation, with engine damage, if you run on more than that. And the problem with these arbitrary gallon mandates is that we're, we're getting close to breaching that 10% level. Right now, we're a little below 10% that we're required to blend. And if the, we're forced to blend more than 10%, the consumer could really be in trouble from the standpoint of increased risk for their engines. Um, it could also actually drive down the amount of gasoline and diesel produced. There have been independent studies done that have shown that um, that the one, one response to having to blend too much ethanol is to actually dial back the amount of gasoline you produce and the amount of diesel you produce. So this is just a, a wrong-headed approach to, uh, to, um, to blending biofuels that doesn't take into account what the consumer wants and the vehicles that the consumers are driving. Yeah, and there's some newer vehicles that have come out that are able to handle more of this, but I know my husband, as silly as this may sound, just bought a new weed eater. And it's a gasoline-powered weed eater, and the weed eater came with specific instructions that if you're using gasoline that has ethanol in it, that you need to have this additive uh, to add to it because of the ethanol. Yeah, that's correct. They're, they're, all small engines cannot exceed 10% ethanol, whether it's a weed eater or a boat, um, a lawnmower, um, an off-road vehicle. All of those um, are basically designed to run on no more than 10% ethanol. And 90% of the cars on the road are designed to run on no more than 10% ethanol. And, in fact, the owner's manuals of your car, if you look at it, many of them say, the warranty will be voided if you try to use more ethanol than, than 10%. So you're putting the, um, the, your gasoline suppliers in a bad position of, of maybe being forced by this mandate to supply fuels that could damage our customers' engines. And that's not something we want to do. <laughs> we provide fuels that are safe and reliable and operate the way our customers want them to operate. So it just shows that this mandate is broken if it, because of the arbitrary nature of, of these requirements. So before we go into kind of the fixes that are proposed, can you uh, expand on the other part of the, the law, the cellulosic uh, ethanol factor? 
Congress just divided up the types of, um, of biofuels into different categories. And most of the ethanol and biofuels are corn ethanol. From, um, from from corn, but they're also what we call advanced biofuels. These are these are biofuels that can be made from corn stalks or stover or switchgrass, and these are called second generation. They're in very limited supply because the technology is still developing and 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 and, and is coming along very slowly. But Congress once again mandated more and more gallons of these biofuels that don't exist. Yeah, so, the phantom fuels. Some of us like to call them. That's right, the phantom fuel issue. So we actually had to go to court, to get, and the courts agreed with with the, with us that you can't mandate an EPA can't require more fuels than, than are actually produced, in effect. So we've got the court ruling on our side on this one, but the problem is EPA now keeps changing the definition of what counts as these elastic fuels. Um, right now they've added natural gas from landfills, which has been around for decades. I mean, they just recategorized that. So, um, Amazing. So yeah, so once again, it, 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 we, they ought to be basing these mandates on what's actually available and not trying to put their thumb on the scale and, in effect, force fuels into the market. Mandates have, have proven not to work. They've had increasing mandates every year for these biofuels, advanced biofuels, yet they still are coming along very slowly because you can't force technological innovation like that. Yeah, so so we've got, obviously, as we've talked about with the RPS in our previous three segments of America's Voice for Energy, uh, we've seen that these mandates, um, you know, really don't don't work, uh, and, and certainly in the electricity sector, they they uh, raise costs, and there are many bills in the current legislative year uh, that aim to dial these back. What's happening with the RFS in Congress? Yeah, this is another area where there's growing bipartisan concern for this legislation, and it, and it cuts across the spectrum because there are, um, there are, in addition to the people who um, are the oil and gas industry, you've got the automakers, small engine manufacturers who are concerned about the effects. You've got the, the cattlemen, the chicken farmers, pork producers who are worried about the cost of diverting all this corn away from feedstocks. So it affects their feed prices. You've got groceries, restaurant um, owners, they're concerned about it because of the cost of food. And you've also got environmentalists and hunger groups worried because of the negative environmental impacts of, of growing more corn. And also, the, again, the, you're diverting corn um, from um, food production. So hunger groups, are, uh, Action Aid, for example, is very worried about that. So you've got growing bipartisan concern. There are a number of bills in Congress that would either repeal the, the, the bill entirely or strip out the corn ethanol mandate, because that's the one issue that has the biggest concern with a lot of people is this increasing mandate for corn ethanol. So, I mean, I find, I find this the uh, what you call the advanced biofuels mandate to be troubling as well, because we're mandating something that doesn't exist, which is craziness. That's correct. So, yeah, so the focus has been, from our industry standpoint, the biggest concern is this ethanol blind wall because we don't want to be forced to blend more ethanol than, than our customers' vehicles can use. But clearly the cellulosic mandate, the fan of fuels, is another important piece of that, and, di and different legislation does address that as well. Um, basically, the, um, would mandate, in effect, Congress can only, can only, EPA can only require what's actually produced, which seems like a, a more rational approach than the current um, RFS would have. Yeah, so do you see uh, optimism on this front with this, this bipartisan support, which, of course, is so rare in Congress these days? Do you think we're going to have success in getting this through this year? 
Well, we're optimistic. You know, getting anything through this Congress is a challenge. Um, <laughs> and you've yeah. got the upcoming election. People are already positioning themselves. Um, and so we are optimistic we can make some progress this year, but we're in this for the long haul. So we've been um, asking, asking citizens to contact their members of Congress, contact their senator, contact the administration about this. Um, we're in the weird position of right now, we don't know what our requirement was for last year to blend ethanol because EPA never finished the rule. We don't know what our requirement is for this year, and here we are in eight, almost May, don't know what the requirement is. Yeah, and I understand so, there's a lawsuit that requires that they have to, and it was a judge declared the EPA has to determine this by uh, set time. That's correct. We, we, we took EPA to court, and EPA agreed to a schedule. So EPA now has to propose the 2014, 2015, and 2016 rules all by June and finalize them by the end of the year. So that's the schedule we hope to keep EPA on. But if you think about it, 2014 is already done and over. 2015 will be done and over by the time we know what the requirement is. So yeah. it's just showing you how absurd and how broken this process is that we have to take EPA to court to do a rule that they're required to do and do it a year or two late. Um, it just, it's, just it's, it's no way to, it's just very poor public policy. Yeah, it certainly is. And I understand the, the difficulty in getting this change with the presidential election year because the only people, it seems, that support this are the corn farmers and perhaps the people who are getting the government subsidies to try to develop these advanced biofuels. And, of course, the corn farmers are in where? Iowa, where we have the first, you know, presidential uh, primary caucus uh, issue, and nobody wants to upset Iowa. That's correct. We, we and, our, and our coalition partners are out there educating the candidates to try to explain to them why the concerns are with the RFS. And, again, it's not that we're opposed to corn ethanol. Corn ethanol no, is a no. perfectly good product, but it's these increasingly unworkable mandates that need to be fixed. So, um, uh, we're, so we're, we're not giving up. We think it's a challenge, but we're, we're, we're optimistic that we can continue to make progress, both legislatively while pushing EPA to finally do the right thing and get back on track, um, with their with their requirements that they're supposed to be um, doing under the statute. Yeah, does API have a website that has education on this particular issue available for our listeners? Yes, we do. They can go to filluponfacts.com. And, um, FillUpOnFacts.com. Yes, Good. And, it, and it's all about the renewable fuel standard, the problems with it, um, and, it and, and and another area. If people want to want to weigh in with a member of Congress, they can go to EnergyCitizens.org, and that we we have tools that will allow allow um, your your listeners to register their concerns with Congress and the administration about the RFS or any other energy related issue. Great. Bob Greco from API, thank you so much. This concludes America's Voice for Energy for this week. Thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.